Hey everyone, before we get started, I just want to make sure you're aware of something cool that Vagrant's doing. Vagrant has 26 years on the street anniversary shows coming up. On May 28th at the Five Point Amphitheater in Irvine, California, they're going to have Dashboard Confessional, Alkaline Trio, Thrice, The Get Up Kids, Hot Rod Circuit, and The Anniversary. And on June 11th at the Palladium Outdoors in Worcester, Massachusetts, they're going to have Dashboard Confessional, Thrice, The Get Up Kids, Hot Rod Circuit, The Anniversary, and Monine. For tickets and more info, go to vagrant.com. Hello, I'm Matt Pryor of The Get Up Kids, and this is Vagrant Records, 25 years on the streets, where we tell the oral history of the label by the artists, fans, and insiders. This episode, we will talk to Rocket from the Crypt and The Hold Steady, who helped establish Vagrant as a place for relevant, proper rock and roll throughout the 2000s. Full disclosure, Rocket from the Crypt is one of my all-time favorite bands, and we spoke to the singer and guitarist John Reese, who is one of my musical heroes. So sorry if I get a little fanboy in this chat. Oh, and the other voice you'll hear in this conversation is super producer of this podcast, Jesse Cannon. So we're talking about when uh, you guys signed over to Vagrant, and it was you started on Cargo... And then, you know, you make, you do that major label bump up. And then you had the thing, wasn't it both, both bands didn't Jehu and Rocket sign to Interscope at the same time? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was kind of the, um, so we were both on cargo and then, uh, there started to be some label interest. I was working at cargo. I wanted to get off the label because I, uh, cause I worked there and I saw, <laughs> and, uh, I started, you know, we started as a band started taking the calls from different labels and then, you know, getting wined and dined and, 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 um, and then, you know, then meet meetings and whatnot. And it, it was never anything where it was like, Oh, both bands have to go, you know, it was never like, and both bands were signed, you know, independently. They had different deals. Okay. And, but it was uh, one of those things where early on, I mean, Interscope was the first label that was that showed any interest. And um, then other, it's just kind of the way it works. Like one label gets interested and then they all get interested. I mean, that's just, I think it's kind of the same for, for any band who kind of ends up, at least during that time, at least during the 90s, when everybody was kind of getting signed and uh, there was a lot of interest in, in that kind of the 90s underground music. It just kind of snowballed for for a lot of, a lot of other bands other than, than us. But I think it was, it was, we kind of both had to be on the same label because that's you know when one band's working the other band isn't so in my mind it was like well there's gonna there's probably gonna be a some weird like tug of war maybe not but seemed like there might be a a conflict there so it made more sense and it was not never anything that i or anyone in in either of the bands had to say you have to take both the bands there was always just the interest see that's what i always thought that it was i always thought it was like like damn that's a baller move you like if you want one of my you want my band you gotta take my other band too you know like not that it's very interesting but the the truth is and people are sometimes surprised by this um is the drive like jehu was the band that they were interested in you know that was the first band that got had any interest from any which is so weird to me because I mean that, that's one of my favorite bands but it doesn't it doesn't make me go like this is going to be on the radio you know what I mean like whereas Rocket has like pop hooks you know like it's well we thought it was weird too I mean we we did you know but we were really impressed by this woman Anna Statman who worked at Interscope she had worked at Slash before that she was an early member of the Gun Club and she was had these you know imp- 
impeccable musical tastes and she was a really cool person. She was no bullshit. She ended up becoming uh, one of my best friends. Still is one of my, you know, someone who's almost like family to me. And uh, so we went with her, you know, not so much the label. We went with her, you know, we talked to everybody and we went. So I think that's something that a lot of people who haven't gone through that kind of like label shopping courting kind of thing don't realize is that you you don't really fall in love with the label. You fall in love with your person there, you know, your A&R person or, or, or whatever. And then because that was our experience is that like we would always find the greatest person at a label. And then when, when we meet the rest, like sub, we almost signed a sub pop. And it was just like as soon as they were like, they didn't like the A&R guy totally got it. And then when we met Jonathan Poneman, he just didn't know what to do with us at all. So it was just kind right. of like, well, that's right. not going to work. Sorry, I got off tangent. No, so, I mean, ha- that's exactly what it is. I mean, and when she was fired... It was like we we wanted to get off the label, you know. That's yeah. when we that's when we were like, hey, we got to get off this this label. So so what then leads you to Vagrant? And had Jehu broken up at that point? Yeah, then, we, we, okay. I don't even know if we ever really broke up. We just kind of stopped playing. It just had a very kind of like I don't know. We just kind of like a clock, just kind of like wound down a bit. Um, Rocket got really busy. Uh, Drive like Jehu was a band that early on it was difficult, you know, to to be in Drive like Jehu because there wasn't really the um, and this is just the way I remember it, but there really wasn't this uh, this desire to like let's go, you know, on the road and play for a year straight. I don't think anyone in that band really wanted to do that i mean it's we we would do a tour and no matter how fun or fun it was or how much how much good it seemed like we were doing when we came home it was like well we just did that let's you know we don't need to go right back out and do that <laughs> eventually i think you know when the band when driver joe got back together i think there was there was a different attitude so it made playing a, a lot more fun at least at least initially until that stopped <laughs> but um it, it was <laughs> You know, we had all kind of, you know, we've changed and evolved a bit and wanted and looked at it in through a different lens, you know. So mm-hmm. so it kind of just fizzled out. We never I never I never quit. No one ever said, I'm not doing this anymore. It was just one day. And this is just my, you know, this is the way I see it. I'm sure the other guys might have a different take because I was the one that was busy, you know, doing rocket. But I just looked up one day and a couple of years had passed and I was like, Well, I kind of think it's maybe over, maybe. I don't know. So it's just kind of like whereas now. Two years can go by and it just seems like, you know, nothing. Like, well, yeah, like, time, time means nothing right yeah. now. Um, mm-hmm. So then technically, if is Jehu still technically signed to Interscope right now? Is that like, or did... I mean, can- uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't know. I technically, maybe, technically, I think between Rocket and Drive Like Jehu, technically, I probably owe them, you know, over a million dollars, technically. Technically. <laughs> they're not getting it, you know, so. <laughs> so what I remember thinking, i wondering at the time if Jehu was going to sign to Vagrant 2, because we were all like, like kind of astounded. We were just sort of like, wait, you got fucking rock? Like, what did you, like, Egan, what did you do? Like, how did you pull that off? Like, you know, like. How did you get like one of our all-time favorite bands to be, you well, know, you know label what, mates? You know, with it us. was a weird time because we begged to get off um, Interscope, and then we kind of, you know, Mario had just joined the band while, um, while kind of this was going on. Actually, I don't think he was even in the band yet. But we, I don't think he was in the band when we signed to Vagrant. So we were kind of like in this thing where, um, yeah, we were in a bit of a limbo, you know. But we knew we were excited to make music, and the last record we 
did was kind of a bummer. The last record we did on Interscope, we liked the record and we liked the process and there was no regrets, but it really, the record was a product of us being on the road for a couple years, three years, two, three years, whatever it was. And we wrote all those songs at sound checks and learned them at sound checks and played them and we'd play them at shows. And they, and this is when, you know, we had done so many tours, uh, on our own that by this time we started entertaining the idea of, oh, well, let's open for this much, you know, more popular band, this larger band and play to their fans. So, you know, we ended up playing to playing with, uh, you know, we did a tour with Rancid when they were at their, one of their most popular, you know, kind of periods when their big record was getting radio play everywhere. And that went really great. And I, I also, you know, kind of knew those guys before. So there was a connection there and uh, it was a lot of fun. And so it was like, oh, well, then let's do, you know, open for the, you know, the Foo Fighters. And I was like, well, that was cool. You know, I mean, that worked pretty well. And it was like, oh, you know, let's open with Soundgarden, you know, and then do the tour with them. And then it was like, oh, that's kind of, you know, kind of weirder. Like it just kind of, just kind of get got a little bit more like, what are we doing here? We're just really, it just seemed like we were a bit desperate, you know, but the music we were writing was really like kind of designed to be played in like these bigger rooms because we playing all these like they call them you know like sheds and like uh places where they also like uh arenas where they play uh hockey not like you know not like where they play football and baseball but like these indoor arenas that are super echoey and like we our faster music was just just sounded like a, a blur you couldn't really understand what was going on because of the acoustics in these rooms so we started to write this you know music that was a lot more just like it was we really dumbed it down on purpose we're just going to really make it stupid we did our last record on Interscope, our person, our contact there, the, the Anna, who was the one looking after us and had her, our best interest at heart, she had been let go. And it was just like, well, we want to get out of here, you know, because we were seeing the writing was on the wall, you know, like we did one record with them. Uh, we didn't have a big mega smash hit on it. We did a second record, did even worse on the second record. And it was like, yeah, I think think uh, it's going to start getting to the point where we have to have, ask permission whenever we want to make our our art, you know, like, can we make a record? Can we record, can, you know, and it just, I didn't want to be in that situation. And even though, you know, you go, we had, there's this process where you go through, you know, you have this contract and our contract was so fucking big. It was like hundreds of pages, you know, it was like a phone book. And, uh, to get this contract crafted was very expensive. And there was much kind of, you know, debate over, oh, well, will we give them the ability to do this or that or this or that? And finally, they just kind of said yes to everything, right? You guys can do whatever you want. And and that was great. But then came a time where they were like, well, you know, we want you to record some new songs for this record. We want to hear some other ideas. You know, and our contract said like, no, you, you know, the band just gives you a record and you put it out and that's the, that's the end and I kind of brought it up like well you know I think we're happy with it and it's done and we will write new songs but that'll be the next one you know we were always kind of looking ahead and moving forward and um, they're like no you know we need to hear new songs you know before we put it out you know we need would really like to hear some other ideas that you have and so it's like okay well we have this thing in our contract but in order to like exercise the contract we needed to like be able to like hire an attorney and 
And, you know, it was just kind of, it didn't matter what was in paper, basically. Yeah. It didn't matter what our agreement was. They had the resources to, you know, they have an attorney just in their office that works there, you know, five days a week and he's their business guy, you know, and it's, uh, he looks over everything and he just kind of goes, yeah, you know, no, we can fight this or fight that. And it was like, well, I don't want to really, you know, we just wanted to go back to like putting out records where there didn't have to be so much kind of fanfare around a release and just put something out and, you know, obviously have someone work the record, but everything didn't need to be, you know, it's a big company. A lot of people work there. I didn't want it to be this process where everything was just so like overblown and, and everything we put out was just so precious because we really could put out like a couple records a year, you know, and we wanted yeah, to. Yeah, you've we always had we thought really we prolific output, to, you know, but it just, they couldn't really keep up and they didn't really have any desire to, to, to keep up. So, so yeah. So, um, we felt like we had like a new lease on life and we were really stoked and we started taking meetings with, with other labels. And I think maybe at that point, maybe that's when, uh, John and Rich got word that we were looking, you know, to, for, uh, for a new home. So did you have any hesitation about going back to an indie from leaving a major label? Like, did you want to like, no, I mean, he- hesitation. No, I didn't really have any hesitation. I, uh, I, uh, we had a couple meetings with some people that were, were not great. Not that there was anything necessarily bad about these labels or bad about the way they did stuff, but it was like, oh man, this would be quite a move in the, in the wrong direction. If we hooked up with these people, it was kind of a little depressing uh, a little bit, not because of, not because they were indie labels, but just because they really didn't get the band. A lot of people didn't really get the band. And that's ultimately why we signed with, with Vagrant because they got us and our sense of humor and what we were about a lot more, you know, than anyone else did. And, you know, it wasn't just Rich, it was John, you know, I really hit it off with John immediately. And, um, I just thought it was really funny. And he <laughs> was, uh, he really didn't, he never tried to be like the music guy. And that's why that's, what I appreciated that about him. You know, he's like, I don't know. I don't care. Yeah. Like, yeah, I like it. I, it's cool. Whatever. Like, <laughs> like it's just the music didn't really matter to him all that much. He was, uh, he liked just kind of running a record label, you know? And, uh, <laughs> it's so funny to me. Cause like, I thought that was annoying about him <laughs> that he didn't like music that much. I, I, I found it refreshing. I must <laughs> say I really did because a lot of people say that they're music people and they're just, they aren't. And they have like the worst idea is and they just really kind of you know it's like um i mean come on we all like music obviously he had to like right. music in some capacity but i did i really did think it was just great and funny you know and and kind of refreshing because he didn't i didn't feel he ever bullshitted me ever oh was, no i never thought he bullshitted i was just kind of like it was like bullshitting the whole time but not like yeah <laughs> not as a liar but just as like he was like okay you know i love the band and he he genuinely did love rocket from the crypt I, and and that was great but it was like you know he just had all these ideas of how he was going to, you know, um, basically make Rocket from the Crypt, like uh, bring us to a point, you know, of popularity that we haven't hadn't yet experienced. And he was going to, you know, introduce our music to a whole new um, audience because at that time, Vagrant was kind of a thing. Vagrant was a, a label that had a sound. They had a roster of bands that were doing really, really well. And 
the majority of them were kind of in a, you know, this, this genre, a certain genre, you know, and, um, and, and rocket obviously wasn't a part of that genre, you know? And, uh, and so it was like, cool, you know, if you think you can do that, go for it, you know, but we're not going on tour with dropkick Murphy's, which I just remember him always like getting mad about because he would suggest us going on tour with these bands. I just didn't want to go on tour with because you know, <laughs> like I already been there, done that, but you know, he liked the band and he wanted, he wanted to help us out, but he also wanted to be associated with, um, <laughs> like, like helping us and doing something good for us. I really do believe that. And he wanted to, he really did want to like, like introduce, uh, our band to a new, basically a, you know, a younger generation of fans of, I guess what we'd call like, you know, rock music or whatnot. Well, and that's how we ended up doing the split seven inch together. Uh-huh. Uh, right. which, which I think was, which was a good thing, but like, you know, I, I, it, we would have, I didn't look at that as like, oh, that would be a, you know, a great kind of like strategy in order to get our music to a different audience. I mean, like we did it because we like you guys and thought it would be a cool thing to do. You know, it was just as simple as that. Yeah. I didn't mean to imply that it was like something gross or anything. It was just, we were excited because I mean, obviously we were just even flattered that you would say yes to it. Cause it was one of those ideas that like Rich would always like talk up and talk up and we'd be like, there's no way they're going to do that. That band's no way. But then it was kind of like, okay, this is awesome. Like we, we have this like, you know, kind of platform and we can show our fans this band that we love. And we had done it before with the anniversary and it kind of worked and doing a split with them back when split seven inches were still, they were kind of a dying thing, but they were still a thing at the time. And yeah, I don't know. It was just, it was really cool. I really, I really uh, was excited to to do that with you guys. That's uh, actually the, the logo, the snake logo on our side of that seven inches, my get up kids tattoo. Oh, rad. <laughs> yeah. <Awesome. laughs> so yeah. Yeah, it looked great. The record looked great and it's cool. It was, uh, we probably should have put a, a better song on there, but it was just kind of, that's all we had at the time. You know what I mean? I mean, they all can't be winners and we just kind of, uh, you know, we went in the studio and it was like, oh, we didn't have anything. And I remember we just wrote that song right there in the studio that day. So what's the first record that comes out on Vagrant then? That's the... We only had like basically two, right? one, right? I mean, we, or no, two. We had two didn't you start Swami Records then too? Was that at the same yeah. time? Yeah, right around. I I don't know. I want to say Swami was like started somewhere around two thousand something, maybe um, right around the time when when uh, Hot Snake started. You know, shortly after the first record, I had started it for the first record, but I um I was putting out records initially with um, Sympathy with Long Gone John. He was helping me, and then um kind of like you know serving as kind of training wheels. And then I kind of started doing it on my own. And then John actually kind of came to the rescue and was like, man, you kind of, you're kind of like not doing things as good as you can be. Let me help you out. And he helped me out for a couple of years uh, to, to a great extent. But the first, yeah, the first record was Group Sounds, which, I mean, that's like, for me, I love that record as far as like it's it's i don't know if it's my favorite rocket record but it's definitely one of them i loved making that record uh that was we started making that record without a drummer we had a, we had been doing demos for i don't know how long but for for a while at at our studio you know just all on eight track and um we had a surplus of material and it just felt like we could just really cherry pick and have we had so much stuff to work with you know so many songs to work with that we were able to kind of like go in and go okay we want to make this you know kind 
a record and we wanted, we had this idea to go to three different kind of places, you know, because I, I, I love making records. You know, I, I just think it's, it's so much fun. And, you know, I love playing live and I love rehearsing and I love making records, but making, making records is always the, um, you know, that's the, that's the kind of part of the process that you do the least amount. I mean, you, the most, the, if you look at the pie chart, it's like almost all playing live, you know, and then it's rehearsing. And then there's like a little sliver for like, you know, making records. And I just love that the process and wanted to do it, spend more time doing it. So I figured, well, you know, Vagrant was really supportive. You know, we were in that honeymoon period where, you know, we get signed and they just, they were just like, yeah, you can do whatever, you know, you want. And uh, the idea was to go to three different studios that we wanted to work at and, um, and record, you know, and so, and also we didn't have a drummer. So we recorded uh, about half of it with, or maybe even more than half of it with, uh, with John Worcester from uh, Super Chunk. Because I just learned that today. That's awesome. I didn't know that. Yeah. He's a good friend and he's a great drummer. Possibly one of the funniest, funniest people in the world. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And he was just, he, you know, we'd played many times with Super Chunk and it was always like, oh man, like. You know, you, you just well, you said, produced one of their records, didn't you? Didn't you yeah. produce um, No Pocky yeah. for Kitty? Uh, it was uh, On the Mouth. Oh, on the Mouth. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, you know, John's a great drummer and I, mm-hmm. he would just like be a great person to work with. And um, so, yeah, he was like, yeah, totally. Let's do it. So, he, uh, we, did he come out to San Diego? I don't I think, yeah, I think he came out to San Diego and we rehearsed a little bit. Not really sure, but there wasn't that much rehearsal. And then it was off to the studio. We went to, to uh, Easley in Memphis and, uh, that was great. You know, it was a great studio. Unfortunately, burned down, but um, great studio, awesome city, and I had a lot of fun. Uh, Jim Dickinson came up and played some uh, some some piano. We had worked with him on on the previous record, that the RFTC record, and so it was cool to kind of um, hook up with him again and just basically, you know, give him some money just to tell us some story, play play on some some songs, but mainly to tell some stories and 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 whatnot. And um, yeah, that was cool. So, so then, and, and we knew we wanted to, to go back to West beach where we made our first records. And I love working with the engineer there, uh, Donald Cameron, who's ac- actually m- almost more of a you know producer. He did the, 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 the first Jehu record. He did the first couple rocket records and uh, he was just a good friend and really liked working with him. Um, so yeah, so we did that. And then, and I think by that time, Mario was in the band and then we also recorded recorded uh with john at uh what's the name of the place sound city oh wow yeah with uh, an engineer that was kind of like the vagrant guy his name was chad yeah chad blinman yeah so we worked with with chad and you know in chad's defense the the recording was not that good but in chad's defense i mean when we went when we you know walked into um sound city i mean that place was in just just disrepair it's like stuff was just not sounding good i'm sure the board needed to be recapped and 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 probably channels were like out of phase and it was just it just sounded extremely kind of like i mean i love you know low fidelity for sure i love things that sound crappy but it, it just kind of sounded it was wrong. crappy and a crappy and a bad yeah there was just like something wrong with it you know that needed to be fixed and i think he did a good job kind of fixing it in the mix but um it just was like uh this place is poopy <laughs> yeah chad chad we did a record with chad and he he really was kind of because like he was working with trevor from face to face a bunch right and it was kind of like for a while there he was and i i have to assume that egan was like managing him in some capacity because he really kept pushing him yeah he pushed on, him on us yeah 
But I mean, he's a great guy. He's good. And he's a good engineer too, but just, he got along yeah. with him. Great. He was a, yeah. a cool dude. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it was just one of those things where it was like the studio just wasn't happening. You know? So that couldn't have been cheap to do <laughs> that, do a record in like four different studios or, or something like that. It, it probably, I mean, it definitely wasn't cheap, but I don't think it was that expensive really. Yeah. Because you know, when we, when we go, when we go to Memphis, it's like, it's just us, you know, and, you know, and um, it's not like we had to, you know, had a producer, you know, and when we went to, to, to West beach, it was just us again. And we worked with Chad, but he was just, you know, he was basically the engineer, right? He wasn't, he obviously brought something to the recording, but um, it wasn't like he was, you know, he was like kind of like taking some kind of like the reins and saying, you have to do this or this, or we should approach it this way. It was purely, you know, him setting up mics, him choosing where the mics went and choosing the microphones that were used and pressing, you know, getting the sounds and pressing, you know, record. So, which is, you know, which is a lot of work actually, which is very important, you know, and, and, um, and really does, does shape the way a record sounds, but I don't think it was that much money. I could be wrong. I mean, it well, wasn't just, nearly it, as much money <laughs> as we were used to spending. <laughs> On Interscope. Yeah. I can imagine. Uh, yeah. It's also the year where like studios were really not doing well so deals were to be had so exactly yeah yeah hence hence like the way sound city was because they really weren't doing that well and i mean nirvana had recorded nevermind there and classic record just really defined an era defined kind of the the kind of generation that like my band was you know associated with and so went in there thinking like well we'll at least get a little bit of that right and it's like mm-hmm. no <laughs> Didn't sound like Nirvana, that's for sure. Didn't sound like the Tom Petty records that were on the wall. Didn't sound like any of that stuff, you know. That's interesting. I I, I guess that kind of we were because t- we were talking about a couple because we ended up recording at a Mad Hatter in L.A. And- Mad Hatter. I've been to, I've I've been to almost every every studio. If 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 not to record, but you know, just taking a tour and stuff. Yeah. Um, well, but I, I always was I've Mad always Hatter. I know I've been there. It was in so it was Chick Corea's studio. Oh yeah, and yeah, Chick Corea. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, in like, silver, like, like a just on the wall kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but I just remember like kind of learning now, like we were just, you know, like kind of floored by that place. And I was like, how did we afford to record there for a month? And it must've just been during that like struggling time period of like, I mean, I'm sure it's, hard to own a recording studio now too. But oh like, yeah. I mean, talk about struggling. Like now is the time where like, I mean, it's just like they've gone the way of the bowling alley and the, you know, the drive-in theater. It's like, there's just barely any. Although stu- drive-in theaters are having a comeback this year because people can't go to movies. What record did you do at Mad Hatter? Something right home about are like, we did it with, with Chad Blinman at Mad Hatter. And that was our biggest record. It was our first uh-huh. one on, on Vagrant. But we were we were there for over a month, you know, on yeah. our with, and we didn't have like a huge budget or anything like that. So I've always wondered how we afforded that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what were what were studios charging, you know, by the day when we were on Interscope uh, and we had uh, a very large budget, you know, to make the record, and we basically had uh, Ocean Way, the the large room. I guess I don't know if it's I think it's Studio A. Uh, we had it. We had that room for shit at least a month and i gotta figure it's probably it was probably a thousand dollars a day i would go even further that uh probably during that era was probably almost 2500 a day yeah yeah. jesus christ so yeah that's one of the most expensive studios i've ever rented but that's like right before the bottom falls out of the industry you know like it's like your guys's era of signing to that 
that kind of like major label, like bidding war, kind of feeding frenzy sort of thing. Like, Well, they all had, all the labels had a lot of money, you know, because if they had a catalog. Because they've been selling CDs, which cost 25 cents to exactly. make and like charging that. 18 bucks for them. And not only, not only selling CDs, but like everybody had to go buy, you know, the meatloaf record again on CD now. And everyone needed to go buy the foreigner records on CDs. Like every big record, you know, had another kind of what was the reaction like to that record? I don't know what the reaction was. I, I thought it was great. To me, it felt like a return to form for the band. I don't think we made any new fans, but I think we uh, uh, definitely made our, our pre-existing fans happy. You know, that I think the record that people like, the band liked it. We, we would go on the road and play pretty much every song on that record for the most part. Maybe one or two didn't make it into the set. But And then we went on tour and we did, uh, you know, much like we did the free tour, we did our first tour was uh, we did two shows a day. The first show would be at a record store and we would play kind of scaled back version of some of our songs as well as some covers and uh, a couple songs specifically for that kind of like um, for that set and then kind of, um, you know, advertise a record because our record was there brand new in the store. And, you know, if we're doing an in-store, you know how it works. The, the, the store will buy copies of the record and make sure that they have stock so that people who come can pick it up. And then it's, uh, you know, telling people about the show later on that night. So we did two shows a day and that was fun. I, I really liked that first, that the, the day set at the record store it was great because it was just, uh, it was just fun. We were able to like really kind of, it was like just kind of show a different side of the band, you know? I think, I think we saw you, you were playing outside and I want to say it was, in, it was at a record store in San Diego because we were on tour and I think we just came down to watch it. And I just remember you guys played under the boardwalk. No, no. Down, we, we played down by the boondock. Like, down by the boondock. That's yeah, what it was. Yeah. yeah okay. Boondock. No. Yeah, down by I guess the boondock. Mystery. Is that what it goes? Yeah. Yeah. No, I just remember being like, I was like, oh, wow, that's cool. That's a song I never would have thought to cover. Oh, yeah. I've always liked that song because it's just like, it's such a weird, I mean, lyrically, it's just so, it's so funny and so, so weird, you know? And then just the word boondocks is just, <laughs> it's just like my grandma used to use that word, you know? Yeah, it, it's funny. So what, at that point then, like what, like you, so you, it sounds like that was a, a positive reaction. You guys did some touring and the, the record, the in-stores and stuff. So what leads into Live from Camp X-Ray, which isn't a live record, right? Right. Yeah. Well, it, it is not a live record. Yeah. Probably not the best title for a record. You know, it was uh, kind of, we kind of did a 180, you know, whereas the record before we did, uh, we're going to go to all these different, you know, recording studios on this one. We're like, we're just going to buy some gear and do this one ourselves at our, at our practice space, you know? And um, so, yeah, we bought a tape machine. We bought a, 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 uh, Soundcraft board. We bought a couple of mic pre's. We didn't really buy much. The mics, I mean, it was pretty, pretty bare bones. And uh, we spent most of the money on just on construction of our rehearsal space to kind of make it sound better and to, and to, to make a, a control room and whatnot. And uh, yeah, so we just did it ourselves there. Did you, and did, did you guys go on tour on that record or had you guys kind of stopped at that point? Oh, we definitely went on tour on that okay. record. Yeah. Yeah. We, we did a tour with, um, Sunny Sunny Vincent opening up. Oh wow! Sunny Vincent opened, and we would uh, Andy 
uh, Mario and myself would back up Sonny and play his songs. Um, at that time, you know, with Mario and the band, he really kind of like Mario has, you know, this massive record collection loves so much, you know, so much underground, cool, somewhat obscure music. And at that time was really into a lot of like kind of underground punk stuff, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, pre-hardcore kind of uh, punk stuff, you know, from the seventies and, uh, and yeah, Sonny was definitely, you know, you know, kind of from that era. And uh, just Mario introduced me to his music, the the band, the uh, Testers that he was in. And I would eventually end up reissuing some of his stuff on Swami Records. But yes, yeah, so we we backed him up and went on tour with him. And uh, we did a couple other tours on, on Camp X-Ray. And then, um, you know, I don't know if it was like 2005. I think we kind of said, well, we were seeing, we were seeing like the, the interest just really wasn't there, you know, and it became increasingly hard to kind of make ends meet as a band. And we had done it for a while at that point, you know, we'd, we'd played so many shows and, and it was getting really repetitive, like, oh, we're at this place again, except there's just less people here. You know, we were seeing that kind of like, like decline in, in the interest. And, um, it just seemed like, well, uh, maybe we shouldn't do this anymore. You know, it just seems like we've really done this a lot. I don't know. Um, and then yeah, I knew I was going to have a kid and it just, you know, for me, I had other things on my mind and it seemed like I was going to have, you know, kind of like, this was time to have kind of pursue a different kind of future. And I don't know what that was, but it just seemed like we had all given this everything we had and the band that was part of it too because because you know rocket was very much like we were we ever we looked at everything kind of almost like a boot camp i mean we would practice so often you know every day during the summer when everyone's having fun we're going to the studio every day and rehearsing for 10 hours a day we really took it super serious i mean a lot of that time was just kind of you know we would bullshit and, and talk and hang out and you know these are my best friends so we had a lot of fun but we really worked very hard. You know, we, we were, in, we were influenced by James Brown and influenced by black flag, you know, hearing about how that kind of level of dedication, um, we wanted to be the best live band in the world. We tried to be super good live. We wanted, uh, I would say you succeeded at that. <laughs> yeah. Unbe uh, unbelievable. That, that was what that was. I appreciate you saying that we really tried. We tried, you know, our attitude is like, we just want to be the best at this. We want to do Well, it was okay. You guys were so good. It would make other like it would make me doubt my my own ability. Like, why am I even doing? I can't do that. Like, why am I even bothering to do anything at all? You know, like you guys were so good live. It was so much fun. Yeah, I thanks so much. We 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 had a lot of fun playing live, but there was a lot of hours behind that. You know, we put yeah. hours into just playing and playing over and over again and just beating it to death. And uh, so when it came time to like, I don't know if we want to do this. Part of it was I knew that if Rocket was going to exist, it could only exist by going by attacking it the same way we always did as soon as we kind of left let our foot off the gas a bit i just felt it wasn't going to be as good and in in retrospect that's kind of that's kind of dumb because it probably would have been as good um, because we had all that, you know, that history and, and we we put all those hours in and we could have probably taken a break as opposed to being so dramatic about it and going, oh, this is the end of of this, you know, this chapter and we need to do something else and and we need to, you know, we have to break up because we just can't, you know, I think part of that is is a little kind of, it's it's kind of over dramatic and I think, but that's just what where our heads were. It's definitely where my head was. And uh, um, and yeah, so we played our last show, which was 
filmed and it was supposed to be a dvd on vagrant which it eventually was and it was a live record but it, like everything went wrong with this filming like i like remember our, hearing about this yeah our friend had had filmed it and he um you know was capable of doing great work and and it probably would have been pretty good but we were dealing with technology that was already old by that time it wasn't even like the um kind of like the cameras that people were using at that time and and uh you know it was pretty it was pretty budget but regardless uh it just the footage like it was in his studio uh while he was editing it and uh, his studio caught on fire and the only footage that was left was like this really rough cut that we had just like this 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 edit that he just kind of did on the first day and it was like well that's all there is <laughs> oh my god that's <laughs> so, awful so he couldn't even like edit it off of you know like um even though we knew it wasn't ever going to be you know the best um video quality as far as the picture goes uh, we were stuck with just this kind of rough dub you know so um that which which is pretty funny because that's pretty much that's kind of like that seems pretty par for the course for, <laughs> you know so yeah and that was it the live record and as the live record was being put together uh i was working on the first night marchers record was on vagrant you know i really feel that i need to like acknowledge all the great people that worked at vagrant because i got along with everyone mm -hmm. really well and really just still have relationships friendships with some of the people you know i still know holly really well i still ben getting who was their graphics guy oh yeah i still talk to him and and work with him on occasion uh he's super talented and he he's a great artist um a lot of people that were there you know Dan, I, ha I haven't really hung out with Dan or seen him in a long time, but I just think very fondly of him. And it was a great label and the people that worked there were all super cool. And it was always, I always look forward to going to the office because I just liked everyone there so much. And it was just, it was just, it was a good, when it was, when it was happening at its best, it was a, it had a really great feeling to be there. Um, and nothing lasts forever, obviously at its peak, it was just, just such a cool place to go. The Hold Steady come from a grand tradition of hard-rocking and hard-living Minneapolis bar bands. Bar band in this sense isn't a derogatory term, but rather a badge of honor. What really sets them apart is the very literary stories that singer Craig Finn weaves into their songs. Tales of misfits and outsiders that have won them well-deserved critical acclaim and commercial success. I spoke to Craig about their time on Vagrant. So we're, we're going to talk about your, uh, your band and, and your time with Vagrant Records specifically. And so I guess just initially, how did you come to work with them? Like, what was your first like interaction with them? And, and what would, what was like, how did, how did that relationship start? So, yeah, I've been trying to think about all this and some of it, some of it feels like a whirlwind and, you know, it's a little fuzzy, but I think I've got it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so like the whole study had put out two records on French kiss records and uh, the second one, especially had done pretty well. And we finally kind of felt like we were, we, you know, we're looking for the next thing and it felt like time to, to maybe go to something else. And we were talking to other people. So Kevin Kasatsu was working for Vagrant or in some capacity. We knew him from uh, my first band, Lifter Puller, had stayed 
at his house in Los Angeles um, years before. So he kind of reappeared and said like, hey, I know you guys. You might not, you may or may not remember because we kind of were hanging out with his roommate at the time. But I'm working at Vagrant now and I actually think it'd be a perfect fit. We kept talking and we talked to other people and eventually it just, it sort of seemed like the right the right thing it seemed like they were they were really realistic etc but it was through kevin who brought us in rather than you know um i guess you know i think of vagrant being rich rich and john but it was kevin who brought it brought us in and and shortly thereafter he left vagrant but mm-hmm. then he went to work with our management company oh so he kind of seamlessly became kept a part of our lives but so that's why it's it's kind of confusing looking back these years well he's a he's a really unique case study because like he was our merch guy. You know what I mean? Like it was like, he was just our friend who worked at Vagrant. And then all of a sudden he becomes Rick Rubin's right-hand guy. You know, it's just like, whoa, okay, I guess. Yeah. He, you know, he was one of those people coming from the Midwest. Like I felt like, you know, he was like one of the first people I knew who really like was an LA person and the people he knew just from hanging out were, were these, you know, LA people. So in some ways he, he seemed like, um, on top of it in a way that like, I, I didn't know people like that before that. So it was, it was cool. And Kevin was, uh, a really good, a really good, it, it really worked well because like he brought us in, but then he went to our management and sort of knew those guys already, et cetera. Did you have any reservations going to the, this particular record label just kind of, uh, I don't know, stylistically? Like it, you, you didn't, you know, like, I don't know how else to put it, but like you, you know, you're, you're such a unique band and it didn't, and Vagrant kind of had this reputation for having kind of a, a sound at the time. I mean, the, the short answer is yes. Okay. <laughs> so I had before, like, you know, before I kind of quit my job to be in the Hold Steady, I was still at the Hold Steady. I was working at this company called Digital Club Network, and we were doing like a webcasting from clubs. And I sort of poured over like club schedules as part of my job all the time. And so I could kind of see, I was aware of sort of what Vagrant had, you know, what, what, what you think of their bread and butter, things that had gone very well for them. So I was very aware of what the band, the, the, you know, the, um, the roster was, et cetera. And it, you know, it, it wasn't like I, I didn't like the music, but it, it felt younger than me. Right. Like, you know, I mean, we, the whole steady was already in our thirties when we, um, started the whole steady, a lot of us anyway. So in the early two thousands, late nineties, early two thousands, there was starting to be things like, uh, street teams and those like, you know, CD samplers with like bands, you know, being when you walked out of a club and that was not, I, that was not where I, that, that made me nervous to be honest, that scene. And I don't know if Vagrant was part of that particular thing or not, but I had, I had, it all felt young and it felt like, I don't know how to explain, you know, I don't want to be <laughs> you know, derogatory or anything. Like there was some element of what I'd sort of call warp tour music that I didn't want, that I didn't think we belonged in, and it wasn't really my thing. So I was um concerned. I remember going to the Vagrant office and seeing a poster of one of the bands on the wall. I, it may it may have been Senses Fail. Is that or is it Senses Fall? Senses Fail. And their hair, you know, like was <laughs> they had like the hair, you know. And I was like, that, you know, I mean, I don't even have I don't have the option to have that kind of hair. So maybe I'm just jealous, but but like uh, you know, it was like, wow, this is not this is not what we do. These aren't this isn't this is just younger than us. Well, be- that band in particular, they were like 17, you know, like they were 16. Yeah, they were really like 
we, you know, you're not that much older than me, I don't think, but like we, we felt like old men around <laughs> the, you know, like I'm, yeah, I'm 49 now. So yeah, I'm 44. Uh, so, so yeah. So, you know, there was that concern and, um, but here's like, the thing is also, then you looked at, okay, so well that, that does, some of that doesn't make sense, but then you say, well, what about Paul Westberg and what about rocket from the crypt? You're like, well, that makes tons of sense. <laughs> like, you know, those are those are those are heroes. So that suddenly, you know, th- th- then you start to look at it from that angle, and it makes a lot of sense. And also, Kevin kind of talked us through. And I remember when we met with Rich, he said something that really put me at ease. Where he was like, you know, what I want to do with Vagrant eventually is, is have a record company. You know, so, so not so much like a record label. Meaning, you know, you don't think of Columbia doing one thing. You don't think of Epic Records doing one thing. You know, you think of, you know, these bigger labels that that, that, that have different departments maybe and can do, you know, Bruce Springsteen and, and you know, what, whatever, Bob Dylan, but also soul music, rap music, whatever. And so that I understood and I was like, okay. And also they kind of made it clear right away that like, we're not, you what you guys are doing is is working for you. So like it, you know, you won't be getting like, it's, it's, it's not like we're going to try to make you do things you don't, you don't want to do. And they were very sincere about that. And I believed it. And it turned out to be extremely true. That, that's been a bit, that's been a through line through a lot of these interviews is even when people get frustrated with Vagrant, it is always like, yeah, they just wanted us to be us. I do remember that was a really important thing to Rich because it was kind of one of those things where like when they started signing some heavier bands, it was like, oh, that then you should have like a a heavy imprint or whatever. And he was like always really against that. Or when the only time I, like I put out two records that were for kids, like kind of children's music records. And he still did. And I was just like, you shouldn't put this out on Vagrant. And he's like, no, no, everything's, it's all, like you said, he wanted to be a, a record, like Columbia, like a record company where it's not like. And sorry if we were out getting off track, but didn't, didn't, didn't get up kids have like a imprint on that? Or yeah, no? we, we did for the first couple of records. Cause we, we kind of, we signed the anniversary and Kofax and, and stuff like that. And that was on our heroes and villains was our, our imprint. Yeah. Yeah. So that's another thing that I just remembered um, today was that, so lifter puller at the end of my first band, we were playing a show in Minneapolis where, and it was with love is laughter. And then, um, the great, great, yeah, we kind of just had ended it. It was the end of a tour. It was really like, like really fun. And, um, you know, the club guy was like, this, this band, the anniversary is going to play if that's cool. And we we're like, yeah, that's fine. But I didn't know them. And, um, they, they had, they actually, for a band I didn't know, had a fair amount of people there to see them. And it was a young crowd and it felt like a vagrant, you know, like a suburban, um, like it felt like, um, Something had worked, you know what I mean? Like uh-huh, in the sense yeah. of like they had brought out kids that had, knew who they were, and they're young, you know, younger people. And it seemed like Vagrant had been successful on that front. And that was one of my first impressions or first knowledge. Of, I was like, where did all these kids come from? <laughs> yeah, we had that. That happened a lot at the time. <laughs> it was like kind of, and to the point where it got to the like point where it was just like kind of not connecting with a lot of the people at the show because they were like fifteen. You know what I mean? And it's just like, and it's just like, I, I used to go just play for my friends and it's great that you're here, but it's just hard for me to like lock in, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm you know, I've, 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 the, whole, the whole city has never had that. So, so you've like, always had an older audience. Yeah, older audience. But I always like, you know, I've had friends in bands that have like a really young audience. I'm like, so like you walk off stage, that's we, like you're, you're, you know, some of the conversations you have because you know, it, it's it's it, the good thing about being in the whole city is like, you know, you walk off, the guys are forty, but you can you kind of know what to talk can, to them about. Yeah, you can go get a beer, <laughs> go get a beer, and uh, shoot the shit. Yeah. So tell me about the first record. Is the first record you? with vagrant is boys and girls in america right yeah exactly and it was great you know um so when we signed a vagrant and like i felt like the other thing i would say just backing up a second is that i got a feeling um like i don't know if rich played sports in high school or anything or college or anything i can't remember if i know that or not but he had a culture of um winning like he was very competitive. Yeah. And he, I liked that because some of the other labels we talked to were kind of like, well, you know, we put it out there and we see what happens. And I was <laughs> like, well, I don't know about that. That doesn't sound great. You know? And so he was like, you know, we're going to, we don't put out the records that we just do. You know, we don't just see what happens. We're going to like, we're going to do, do our best here. And I, I like that. So, and um, they were, I mean, we were tr- not trying to like put money in our pocket, but we wanted to make a record that was better than the last record we made. And there was going to be some costs around that. And we wanted to bring in kind of a producer who wasn't our friend. Um, who produced that record? Uh, John Ignall. Okay. Um, so, and, you know, John became, John became a friend, but, uh, but, you know, we, we were new to working with him and it was, it's sort of a step up, you know, given his credits and whatnot. Um, so we, you know, we, they, they were very, they understood that. And I felt like, again, that like some of the other people we had been talking to were kind of like, oh, I don't know, that's going to be expensive, you know? So Vagrant, Vagrant was able to, to put us in the studio to make the record we wanted to make. And it was great. And I, God, I, you know, at this point we had management um, probably right around the same time, but I don't remember anyone from the studio coming in or anyone from the label coming to the studio. We did it in water music and um, uh, like Jersey City or Hoboken. Hoboken. Yeah. Amazing studio. Yeah. I've never great. been to that place. And it, it was great in that um, there's like a little residency and we could live there. And I mean, obviously it's just on the other side of the river, but like we were kind of feral and also like we are a lot of our like due to the touring and like relationship stuff, a lot of our like living situations at the time were a little touch and go. So I think it was like awesome that we were able to just all stay there. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I'm only, I'm not really joking. It was like a stability thing. And, and even though it was just in Hoboken, it felt like it was enough far away to get everyone to like, you know, focus on the, on the task. It is, surprisingly close to the city, but still so very far away from it at the same time. Yeah. I mean, I mean, just getting on the path train is seems like a a bigger thing, you know, like you feel Um, like you're out, you're out of New York at that point, kind of like you feel like you're still in a city, but you're not like in New York, you know, like when you go to water music from the path train, if it's by foot or car, you're still at least 20, 30 minutes, which for New York people is an unreasonable walk all the time. Yeah. It's a, it's a serious walk to, uh, from the train station to water. And the other thing about water, um, that I remember like 
kind of awesome was they had like a huge supermarket across the yes. street. Yes. So I remember wander every time I get bored, I'd just be like wandering around in there, you know, like looking, you know, it's like smoke a joint and want a snack. And then it would be like, <laughs> I can have to- anything. Yeah. <laughs> like, Truly a five minute walk supermarket size from if you walked all the aisles. Yeah. And, and yeah. And I mean, like, you know, coming out of the city where like our supermarkets are kind of shrunk. Right. You know, so like this is a true like Midwestern where I grew up like size supermarket. And so, yeah, so we, we did the record and uh, we had a good time. Like it was, a, it was a fun record to make. It felt like we were, uh, everyone was in good spirits. We were f- like firing on all cylinders. It came, it, it went pretty easy. I mean, I, I've told this story a lot, but I, I remember being kind of like, I, I don't think I understood what a record producer did up until that point, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that they can do a lot of different things, but one of the things that was amazing and still, it just blew my mind at the time. This is going to sound so simple and so obvious, but John took out a calendar and said, okay, well, here's when we're going to work. These are your days off. And I remember like Mother's Day was one, Mother's Day is off, you know? But like he, he told us like weeks ahead when we were going to be working and when we weren't. And every time I'd been in the studio prior to that, it's been like, well, when should we show up tomorrow? You know, just like, just like, like day by know, day, and, and oh, I don't know. I've got a dentist appointment. Like it just seemed like there there was something like very serious to be done, and everyone responded to that. And um, uh, we had fun, but we, but you know, it was it was it was hard work, and it went. You know, I think everyone was really excited, and I felt like I felt like we were really like it was one of those times where I felt like like this material is is really good. And I'm really excited for people to hear it. And um, I, I, I have this, I, I do have this like great memory of uh, talking to uh, John Darnell um, from the Mountain Goats on the on the lawn, who's a friend of mine, and uh, on that lawn on water. And I remember talking to him, and I'm like, I think I, I think I know what the, this record is going to be called. It's, it's going to be called Boys and Girls in America. And he's like, That's great. That's great. Like that. So I was like, Okay, well, if he thinks it's good, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> that guys, there's a turn of phrase or two. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, it, it it got done, and um, I mean, it was it was May. I know it was May because I remember like again Mother's Day, and then also I remember we had a Cinco de Mayo party um, that got kind of out of, out of hands. But uh, for the most part, we were pretty pretty working pretty hard. And I mean, that record got a lot of high praise too, and did really well, right? Yeah. So it came out in October. I remember you know we played the we played um, Irving Plaza, uh, which was a big deal at the, at the time. That felt like huge right around the day it came out, and there was a lot of great press. The Times had done a big piece, and um, et cetera, et cetera. And then and then we went out on a like a big like month long tour that was great. Like you know it was it was you know sold out for the most part. And and here's another thing about Vagrant, like that that the first two records that we'd done we'd never been to Europe, so. That record came out in uh, October 2006. So in like January to February 2007, first Tad and I went over with Kevin Satsu to do press in several countries in Europe. And then the band came and joined us and we did like um, a little bit of Germany, maybe Amsterdam, Paris, and then um, a lot of England. It was our first time really over there it kind of went wild. Like, like um, not so much the mainland Europe, but, but the UK just went, went fantastic and everything sold out. And like, we had a lot of fun and it was for everything that had gone well past year or two, including boys and girls in America, it felt like an explosion, at least to us over there, that became a big part of like, you know, then we started going back probably, I don't know, 
maybe four times in 2007. A lot, you know. Who put the record out in the UK? Was it, it just was full time hobby? Was okay. Yeah, was, I remember them. So it was the deal through Vagrant had a deal through them, and uh, they they did that one, and um, and then they reissued the first two. So obviously, then it's like okay, so signing the Vagrant probably would probably worked out pretty well. It's kind of like it. Did you ever have anybody? It doesn't seem like it's kind of a stupid question, but like because I, I I can see that like. You know, it's almost like you were the first band on Vagrant that got good reviews, <laughs> you know, because like we didn't really start getting appreciated in the press until long after we, we, we had been a band. And then that generation of, you know, we, you're talking about the, the youngsters who were very, very popular, but got panned by the press. And so it's just kind of interesting to to see you guys getting sort of like because you know you get a little jealous you get a little like <laughs> sure. come on man we fucking pitchfork even like some god damn it you know <laughs> yeah i mean i think that i mean part of that was staking i think that well i mean it, it, it's all kind of i mean it's all like the, the first thing was that lifter puller our first band like had gotten this weird like we broke up and then everyone decided they loved us you're calling pitchfork out is the story i tell to everybody all the time of lifter puller lifter puller put out got like a three and then also got a 9.1 <laughs> on, the, <laughs> on the same on the same record T- 10 years later you know who, now, who put out who put out the lifter puller stuff was that we, uh self-starter foundation which was a small label, and then french kiss uh and french kiss was lace avi fav and they put out the first two uh steady records so that kind of like framing of uh I sort of looking back think that maybe that that was like a, one of the smarter things that that I don't know if it was an accident. I mean, Lace Avi Fav were our very good friends. It was our you know band that we were very close with. But I think that by putting out the Hold Steady first two records through French Kiss, which was kind of like an artsy punk label, and to have this kind of like I don't know bar band kind of sound, <laughs> you know, down the middle um, rock and roll coming out force people to maybe look at it differently or um, encourage people to look look at it differently than they might have if it just came out somewhere else. So I think in, a, in, in you know, in my ver- view of it, that may have helped our uh, sort of the framing of the band and, and may have and may have helped us with the press in uh, who knows. Yeah. I, yeah. There's no no formula to it. So you tour all over on that record. You're getting good reviews. You're going to Europe for the first time. So what is the band's like attitude going into the next record and to stay positive? Well, stay positive was, um, I mean, it, 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 when I look back and again, things get blurry, it feels almost like an extension of boys and girls in America. Like it was released pretty recorded pretty quickly thereafter. Um, I would say as a fan, I agree with you. <laughs> it feels yeah. like it is. It's a companion sort of, I mean, we like, well, yeah, we like went and did it with the same producer in the same studio. <laughs> um, so it, it just felt like we had momentum. And the only thing was different is we were we were touring so much. And again, a lot of Europe, you know, um, that we kind of came to the, the conclusion that we were um, going to have to write right, right. You like, you know, like on the road. And so remember like doing a lot of festivals and you know how, when you're at festivals, sometimes, you know, it's like a 45 minute set sometimes, and sometimes it's earlier in the day. So we'd end up back at the hotel. Sometimes it wouldn't be too late. And we'd go into a hotel room and like write with acoustic guitars. And a lot of those records was written in backstages and hotel rooms. And it's funny because I listen to it now and there's kind of a number of songs about rock and roll itself. So it kind of like, 
creeped in that way. I felt like um, you, you, you are very, uh, and I'm just saying this as as a songwriter myself and as a fan. You, you are very good because it's a hard needle to thread of talking about rock and roll without sounding like you know wanted wanted dead or alive or something. You know, like without being <laughs> incredibly corny about it. Yeah, and, I mean, you, and you've you've really succeeded at that, and I think it's really you. impressive. Thank you. That I mean, that is the death of like you know a lot of our favorite bands of the '70s when they sort of lose uh, lose like any like relation to normal life and right, just can right. only can well, only now, write about them. now it's like people like fucking Morrissey and Clapton who are like anti-immigrant, and yeah. like anti you know oh, it's just like. It's just like, whoa, you've really lost the plot, bud. It was it was smart on our part. Like, you know, and I, I look back because like we were there was, you know, rock stuff happening and there was a lot of like drinking and etc. But I can like look back and say, like, I'm impressed with our work ethic. Like we wouldn't have been able to make that record quickly unless we got it together, even even on the road and whatnot. So we went in, I think, in early 2008, like January 2nd or something and made that record. And um, um, again, it went pretty easy. John John knew us. We had a lot of fun making it. I don't remember, you know, like the, the little blurry. I remember Doug Gillard from Guided by Voices came and played some guitar. Um, ben Nichols from Lucero came and sang some. We got Patterson Hood from the Drive-By Truckers to sing on it via technology. We hadn't met him yet. Agnello knew him. So we got that done and uh, that came out in July of 2008. And I remember for that one, we were actually over in England when that released. And that was kind of a... Um, a cool thing. And by that point, um, though, by stay positive, we had changed the out, you know, Vagrant had done a deal and Vagrant and us had done a deal outside of the U S where we moved over to rough trade, um, in for, Europe, in, in Europe and everywhere except for the U S yeah. Or North America. I'm sure, I think. Yeah. So, um, so that was part of it too, but yeah, but and stay positive went well too. Like it, it was all kind of like, it all just feels like one thing though. Like, you know, from a distance, like it just sort of seems like a lot of touring and a lot of, um, a lot of being on the road and, 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 and but it feeling good. So yeah, I, I, I completely agree. That's totally my kind of perception of it, to the point where I actually forget which like, I thought that that sequestered in Memphis song was on boys and girls in America until I just looked up. And I was just like, because I just kind of like those two records just feel, you know, yeah, yeah, so they're, they're so together, yeah, like two sides of the coin or something. So then, what's different moving forward after that? Okay, so then what happened was I could probably relate as someone who's toured a lot that everyone started to get tired, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, the wheels started to wobble a little bit. And because um, how long had you been a band at that point? This is around like two thousand nine or so. Yeah, so two thousand nine, and and uh, we started to do some kind of fun stuff. We did, we did like by 2009, we were doing like, um, you know, we, we were kind of like, we, for one, we did a really fun, I thought it was really fun tour with the Counting Crows over in England, um, and Europe. Uh, and they still were in like kind of hockey arenas at that point. And, uh, and it was really fun. I mean, it, it wasn't like the busiest tour because it, I think our set was like 40 minutes <laughs> and it's in a bus, you know, but, uh, I remember it eating very well, like their catering was amazing <laughs> and, and like, and it was just fun, you know, like, like, like it wasn't like, it, it just sort of felt like, like, you know, like their crew was, the, the, they were all very amazing people and sweet. And like, it ended up being a lot of fun and really positive. But then it, Franz, you know, started to talk about leaving the band. And um, that is, as we kind of were figuring out 
what was going to happen for the next record. He, he left the band and we were kind of trying to get songs. And then there was, you know, there was some other stuff. There was like, I just say behind the music, you know, um, <laughs> substance kind of stuff coming in. And, um, and we started to struggle, really. You know, I think it would have, the next record, which is um, Heaven is Whenever, might have been different in hindsight if we would have taken a little break, <laughs> you know? But I always, always kind of under the um, impression, I, I always sort of felt like, you know, like, if you're like, you have like a son or a daughter, and they're like, Dad, I'm just going to take a semester off of college. You're like, no, 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 because like... <laughs> then you're not you know then you're not then you're not going back right you know and i sort of felt like that about the hold steady i felt like if we don't if we don't keep this hamster wheel turning god knows you know we kind of pushed ahead and we probably should have taken a little break and gotten some things in order so we made heaven is whenever and we did that we tried that the idea for that was um to kind of try to take it back. It felt like we'd learned from In Yellow, you know, and maybe we need to do something different. So we actually got our friend Dean, who'd recorded our first two records, and kind of was like, back to basics That was the idea. In hindsight, I think what we should have done, besides take a break, is, is like, we made a lot of songs for that record. And I sort of remember at this point... Um, not really overtly from the label, but, you know, or the two labels, because now there's Vagrant and there's Rough Trade, but maybe, maybe somewhat overtly and maybe somewhat subconsciously, there was this idea that we needed a big song, you know, you need a song. What's this, you know, it's got to have a chorus. And that's like, not really the whole steady strong point, big choruses, you know? <laughs> why, why? Like, you know what I mean? Like why, if, if things have been going so well, if it ain't broke, you know, <laughs> it's just sort of one word, one word. And that was radio, you know, and radio had really not been playing the hold steady, even though we'd done like, that was like sort of the missing that, that kept saying, well, this is the missing piece, right? You know, this is, this is the place you can grow. This is the area you can grow. And I'm always someone who's like, growth is important. So however we want to grow. And it's like, well, why not try? Like, you know, what, what's so hard. So anyways, um, but I think in hindsight, it would have been cooler to make a record like, um, cause we made so many songs and it would have been cooler to do something like, uh, try to do something kind of loose and sprawling, like a London Calling or an Exile on Main Street, where we like did a bunch of different songs and a bunch of different ways and uh, made it a double album and kind of like let you see a little bit behind the curtain. Um, instead, we kind of like record a lot of music, but then we kind of, I don't know, the mixes, I feel like, and look, I was there for all of it. So it's like, wasn't like I didn't sign off on it, <laughs> any of it, but I'm just looking back on it hindsight. We recently reissued it. So I've thought about it a lot. You know, I think that there's like, there's sort of been this last minute, like putting a sheen on it or something. And it ended up being kind of like, it came out, it wasn't, it wasn't as well received. And I think like when I listen back to it, I think it's, I, it, you know, and I spent a lot of time when we reissued it. I actually think it's our funniest record, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, but I also think, like the the performances do not contain much joy in them so that the, the 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 humor in it doesn't really come across it's sort of it's disconnected from the music so um but whatever i mean you start to make eight nine seven albums right 
you have to have some that are, you know, like like every artist has those. And so this one was, but that was a um, that came out through Vagrant. I remember Vagrant was like, I will say two. One thing is that um, during the making of Heaven Is Whenever, and like I said, there were struggles with substances and within the band. And John Cohen um, was really really helpful with that. And I remember him calling me with a lot of concern, but also a lot of care about, you know, people in the band and, and what he could do to help. I do very much appreciate that because uh, that was, there was definitely like, it wasn't like, what are you guys doing on our dime? It was more like the, you know, you have people that are hurting and, and like, let's, let's see how we could help. That's a very kind of unique thing too, just in this industry. Cause you hear so many stories about, you know, if you're making money, it's like, do whatever it takes you know, do, you know, the, the, the people at the label or, or, oh, yeah. you mean, know, it's so it's, many horror stories, like people die, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's just like, got to keep them out there, get them whatever they need. Cause we, you know, people got to print more records. People die all the time. I mean, you see that. And that's like what I keep, every time that happens, I like, oof. You know, that's a mark on, yeah. I mean, like, like that, that so that, that definitely would be something I would say that that was, so very, when I look back on um, that record, that was one one thing I do remember very fondly, even though, because I didn't know what to do, really, you know, I didn't know how to help. And so I, I do remember John Cohen really fondly for that, for him, his, you know, consistent reaching out on that topic. Did you guys continue to tour on that record or did you? Yeah, so we, we, we did. And, and there was Ted got some help well the other thing so there was there was a health thing there was a pancreatitis thing too like so it was all it was all kind of tied in so there was hospitalization and we went on tour and uh franz left so we kind of had a lineup change that had its ups and downs and uh but in the process we got steve selvage who remains a member of the band to this day so that's a very happy thing from that time but it was you know it was it was definitely like there was a bit of a letdown after riding high on the two records previous but like it didn't feel like i don't think anyone i don't think i would have even um i don't think i would have even known to consider it was never it never felt like like someone's failing us the industry's failing us or someone on our team's failing us it just felt like you know people don't like this one as much and maybe maybe we're just kind of like either out of ideas or exhausted or something you know it's it's hard when you're in it to know that you need to take a break you know because like you don't the, the thing is, is you, you've been able to like do this for some amount of years now. Right. And, and, you know, if you start to say like, well, you guys got to go get jobs now, everyone's like, no, but like the worst thing you can do is, is the worst like music's going to get made is if you're just trying to avoid having a job. I mean, yeah, like, right. that music doesn't need to be in this world. Well, you're going to take shit tours and you're going to make bad records. And uh, sometimes in that situation, the best thing you can do is take a break and go get a job for six months just so that you appreciate, you know, uh, what you have. Absolutely. And that's the thing, like, you know, like when you start to get into that situation, cause that, you know, that, that, that sort of launched a few years where I felt like we were in that... And, you know, you, you get offered this festival and it's, you know, somewhere in, I don't know, Florida or somewhere. And you're like, oh, that looks terrible. But like we have to do well. it to keep the lights on. And then it's like, well, that's dude, that that's bad. You know, like. That's, yeah. And you're just like, that's not who we are. You know, like. Yeah. So I think if you don't, you have to sort of recapture the joy in order for it to like feel good for the fans, too. Mm hmm. 
they have very good bullshit detectors. Yeah, fans. better better than the band. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is probably true. So is that the last record you did with Vagrant? Heaven is Whenever? No, I did a solo record after that. And uh, Clear Heartful Eyes. And they were, uh, I kind of came to them and said, like, this is what I'm thinking. And they were very cool and said, yeah, let's, let's do it. And, uh, we went to, um, I went down to Austin and, uh, worked with Mike McCarthy on that one for who had done spoon and Patty Griffin, etc. And, uh, trail of dead. That was amazing. I mean, that was like a really good thing for me, actually kind of life-changing because Again, you know, I hadn't done much outside of being in a band and and I talked to Mike and I sent him some demos and I was like, I was kind of always like kind of a little timid about how I, my, my own musicianship. And I was like, well, I write all these songs, but I'm not a great player, etc. And he was like, can you sing it to me over the phone? I was like, of course I can. He's like, all right, well, then you got a song. I'll worry about the rest. And um, he put together a band of these, you know, amazing Texas guys and um, went down there, shook their hands. First day we recorded three songs and we did that for four more days. And so we had 14 songs and, um, you know, mixed it. Uh, There wasn't a computer involved. It was it was a really cool experience. It was all the tape. Yeah, it was all to tape. I think he like dumped it into Pro Tools for mixing, but like everything else was just t- in takes, you know, like not really, not really overdubbing, just, just getting a band playing on the floor. Um, really nice and not a huge volume, etc. And that was really cool. And so, um, and then I went out on the road uh, for a little bit with that band or, you know, some members of that band, the ones that could tour and a few other people put put a band together. And that was really positive, too. Um, like the, the record wasn't a huge seller, um, but they were really cool. Vagrant was really cool about it. So this was when was Hold Steady on like a, a hiatus or did the band actually break up at that point? No, it was just like down, you know, between tours kind of. And we were still getting together and trying to write and trying to figure out. But it needed a little break. <laughs> You know, like that. It definitely after the after the um, heaven is whenever tour felt like it needed a little recharge, and uh, and by that point I was aware of it. The so okay, so then is that was your solo record, the Clear Heart Full of Ice record? Was that the last thing on on Vagrant? Yes. Yeah. Okay, and so then how was your because your the next hold study ready hold study record is on. Razor, razor and tie. tie. So how was your departure from Vagrant? Was that, I mean, it seems yeah. like you had a, a positive relationship with them. Yeah. It, it wasn't like, you know, well, we got new management and I think, you know, I think Vagrant was kind of like, I can't remember what Vagrant was exactly doing at that time. Um, Cause it wasn't until like 2014 that we put out teeth dreams. And um, you know, I, it, it I can't remember. Um, but I think it was just kind of like, Look, we've had a good run, but rock and roll sometimes like a can be if you don't watch it a little bit like a rat trap. Like you, you want to go. You, it only goes in one way. So of course we wanted more money to record like the next record, you know, or at least as much, right? And they were kind of like, well, you know, records aren't selling. There's more, you know, etc. So we found someone who would who would make the record that we wanted to make, and we went with them. Uh, but it wasn't, yeah. Well, there was no animosity, and there still isn't. I mean, Dan Gill uh, is the other guy at Vagrant that um, was was a big part of the whole steady story, and you know, I still talk to him. He's the one that's uh, kind of in charge of this whole project. This whole reissue thing that they're doing at yeah, Vagrant he, now. He came in right kind of I think right around the time that we started. So like I, I think feel that's like, right. You know, yeah. he, he connected with us. Like we we all connected pretty well. He's got a New York kind of thing, you know. 
I don't know if you remember, but you played with us on our quote unquote farewell tour in uh, at Starland Ballroom. And I remember because that was like right, we were burnt, we were we were over it. But that was around the same time that like Vagrant had this kind of new influx of like Dan and Wayne and and like this whole sort of thing. And I don't know, I thought I thought it was really cool when you guys signed to the label. Yeah, I remember that. It, it gave it gave us some legitimacy. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> remember, I, there were two shows. I think there was like the Starland Ballroom. Oh, did you maybe. play the New York one too? We no, we played like Starland in New Jersey and then Worcester. Okay. At the Palladium? I do remember those. And I remember, because I remember, like, I also, I remember, like, uh, at least one, like, you guys did the Beer for Breakfast, that replacement yeah, yeah, song. Yeah, yeah, And one of them, uh, I think the one at Starland still has my uh, favorite heckle that I've ever received from an audience member where... Uh, I gotta hear this. We were doing a slow song, and, you know, we, we got a little into it, and I sang the first verse, and uh, and then some guy kind of near the front goes, all right, now let's try to sing the second verse. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's really good. I was loving that. And then uh and then also like uh one of those shows had a um one of the other support I think Kevin Devine did one of them but um Yeah, he did that Worcester one. Yeah. Yeah, and then the other one was uh, a band called like Nightmare of is it Nightmare of You? Is yeah, that? yeah, yeah, yeah. They were uh, Movie Life and then Sammy Sigler. Oh, I remember Sammy. Yeah. yeah so that, that that was what I was going to bring up is that uh I remember meeting Sammy there and I was a big Youth of Today guy when I was young, so I was pretty excited about that. He was like wasn't he like 15 when he was in that band? Yeah, yeah, he was. He was super friendly. So I think we like, I was really excited about that. I moved to New York in 2000 and like all my New York hardcore fantasies from being when I was young, like I was kind of checking off, like <laughs> I need to meet this guy <laughs> next. I need to meet this. Now, now I think I pretty much met them all. I just wanted to meet Walter. And once I did, I was like, this guy's cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like well, he's like the cool, I mean, he's, he's super cool and remains like super cool. And he's very, like, he's very know. chill. So any f- fun, crazy stories about the label you want to throw in there or your time at the label? Or, I mean, I think that thing about Cohen being super supportive about people needing help is really cool. That was really cool. Um, you know, I think there was this one thing, like I was just thinking about, like, and like, I, I, ne- I never heard from, I remember like uh, early on, like really early on, like in, after signing him, you know, we talked about being like a little, like trying to figure out where we fit in, like with the roster at large, etc. And there was some kid, and I, I never heard from him again, so I don't know if he lasted very long, but um, first he sent like an email and it was like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm throwing this big warp tour party at, at you know some bar for everyone who's on warp tour. You guys got to come. And I was like, well, I don't think I need to come to that, you know. <laughs> and then and then the next thing <laughs> was that uh, he sent like this weird email that was like, hey, so all right, I don't think I was supposed to be on the email or yet. He didn't understand that I was in the band. It's like I guess we've got this band to hold steady. So let just got a couple questions. How many people in the band? And it was just like stuff you could have learned from looking at the bio for a second. And I. I was like, what the hell is this? And so like me and the publicist like was like just basically sent a copy to Rich, like, what the hell is this? And he was like, Oh, you'll never have to work with that guy again. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if we got him fired. I don't I hope not, but like it was more like, okay, I, I know I know you guys had concerns about this. Like th- this guy's off your case. Like you're 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 in a you're in a different different branch or something like so. So I remember like just stuff like that. I, I just remember like him being really cool, both of them. Them, both John and Rich being really cool and like very much understanding any concerns and kind of dealing with them quickly and directly in a cool way. That was my experience as well. I think that that's it's one of the 
things that like why there's a reason to like tell these stories about this label is that I think it's a really unique, it's not something you get from a lot of record labels. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you know, and the other thing about like, I was just thinking like the one thing that like uh, I would always bond with Cohen about is like if I was out there and I'd go into the office and have lunch with him or something, the John Reese stuff, like he was kind of involved in the Swami Records thing. We just talked to John today, actually. And and he would always be like, check out, you know, like because John and I love John. He just had such a cool like understanding of rock history and be like, check out this band from Buffalo in 1977, you know, that John found. <laughs> and like that would be music that I would really get off on. And so like I think Cohen and I really um, shared a lot of enthusiasm about um, in fact he introduced me to John Reese and you know that's someone I still consider a friend so I think that that was definitely a connection point like if this guy's cool with Reese then, he, then he's definitely cool with me <laughs> yeah right that's kind of funny when we were talking to, to Reese earlier he was saying how much he liked Cohen because Cohen didn't know anything about music and I was I was just kind of like yeah I always thought that was kind of annoying and John's like nah he's just like he's like I don't know anything about music you tell me tell me about you know like and wanted to learn and I thought that yeah, but I mean, I think like no, Cohen probably knew that I was I was like likely to, to like this thing, you know. But like you know, I I, I always like I always thought that if that, that was cool that they kind of had it, fingers in that that world with Reese and Swami. That's cool. That's it for this episode of Vagrant Records: Twenty Five Years on the Streets. On our next episode, we will begin to tell the story of Vagrant working with one of the defining hardcore bands of the two thousands, Thrice. So be sure to subscribe to this podcast and rate it on iTunes. This podcast was produced by Jesse Cannon for Muse Formation and executive produced by Fred Feldman and Andrew Ellis. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode. <laughs>